0: Welcome to the Woodall Wellness Podcast, where husband and wife team, Dr. Mark and Anissa Woodall, explore topics from movement and nutrition to parenting and sustainability and everything in between. Learning from mentors and thought leaders with one goal to help create a better world. Dr. Mark Woodall is a licensed naturopathic physician practicing integrative and functional medicine, helping to heal simple and complex chronic illnesses.
1: Anissa Woodall is a holistic certified nutritionist with the aim to inspire women to live, eat, and move with intention and confidence. Both of us work with patients in Issaquah, a suburb of Seattle, Washington, and online. You can learn more about us at our website, woodallwellness.com. Hello there, and welcome to Episode 9, The Power of Herbal Medicine with Dr. Eric Yarnell. Dr. Yarnell was one of my professors at Bastyr University, and he has been a rock star in the field of herbal medicine for over 24 years, holy smokes. His practice has mainly focused on men's health, urology, and nephrology, which is the study of kidneys, if you're wondering. He is the president of Heron Botanicals, which is an awesome herbal medicine-making company located in Washington, He's also a co-founder of Boucher Institute of Naturopathic Medicine in Vancouver, BC. Besides the multiple different Contributions Eric has had in the field of naturopathic medicine. He's been a personal mentor to me and one of the physicians that I look to and continue to ask questions when I get stuck on cases or have a question about herbal medicine. He's always been able and willing to reach back out when I shoot him a text message about something. And that type of kindness and that ability to pay it forward is a really fantastic attribute that I hope every doctor shares with their mentees now we get into a lot of really cool things in this episode specifically herbal constituents that 100 year long debate of using the whole herb versus using the single constituent think curcumin versus turmeric but we kind of explore that under the context of malaria which is a really fascinating story Dr. Eric Yarnell also inspires us to take charge of our own personal health as we uncover health journeys throughout our life, rather than having doctors be the people who have to constantly fix us. I think this is a really inspiring podcast that touches on sustainability, it touches on herbal medicine, and it touches on the doctor-patient relationship. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Woodall Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Woodall, and with me today is my co-host, Anissa Woodall, and we've got a really great podcast for everyone today. We've got Dr. Eric Yarnell, and we're gonna be talking about um, medical um, herbalism, botanical medicine, sustainability, just getting out into nature, a lot of different things. But before you became a naturopath, um, Eric, can you just share the story of how you, you found Bastier and, and how that kind of came to be? Cause I seem to remember this being kind of, um, uh, serendipitous if, if,
0: yeah,
2: that's a, that's a great term. It's, I don't know, quasi mystical, I suppose. And if you can ask anyone, I'm not a quasi mystical person. Maybe I am. And I'm fooling myself. <laughs> anyway, I actually, um had really been studying to be a teacher, like a high school level teacher, and particularly for English and literature. And i had been pursuing that, and and this was in Colorado, where I'm from. But I did my first student teaching, and it just, it kind of hit me, like just the educational system has got so many problems, and I just really wasn't sure I could be part of that. So I kind of was adrift, and I moved to Seattle kind of on a whim. I knew one person here, And I'd never been, I'd never lived outside of Colorado. Okay,
1: you're from Colorado.
2: I'm from Colorado. So there I was. um, And I basically was just doing odd jobs. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I got lost one day looking for this bakery I'd heard about called the Honey Bear, which was supposed to be this really great bakery that was a co-op. And it was like, they had all these gluten-free things. I'm like, I got to try that out. So I'm riding my bike around, and I can't find it. I'm totally lost. And ask anyone, I get lost in my own house. I have a terrible sense of direction. And so I went into this, like, there was this weird building. It was an elementary school building, clearly, but it was no longer an elementary school. And it had this weird sign that said, John Bastier College of Naturopathic Medicine at that time, because this was
1: 1991.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... It also had, a like, a dance academy in this building and, like, a... I don't know. So I go in to ask for directions, and I run into the director of admissions. This is the first person I meet for Bastyr. His name is Ron Hobbs. And we have this whole long discussion because i never heard of naturopathic medicine. He tells me all about it, and just light bulbs are going off. Like, I wanted to do something scientific. I want to help people. I get to use plants. Like, that's cool. Like, it just... It just seemed perfect. I mean, literally in that moment, I'm like, I want to be one of these doctors. I've never even heard of this, mm-hmm. and it's perfect. <laughs> and I that and that's basically what happened. <laughs> it's such a great, you know, great and that story.
0: Was, that was like in the very early days of Bastier University before it became like in a, in a full building. It was very kind of off the off the hidden path.
2: <laughs> that's right. It was much much smaller. I think there was. I think there was a nutrition program, but it was like there was just naturopathic medicine and nutrition. Yeah, it was much, much smaller and, yeah, kind of a different world, but now, wonderful.
1: Before you got to Bastyr, were you involved in botany and medical herbalism and things like this?
2: Not at all. Um, my only – the connection and why I was kind of excited about it being in, involving plants is that my father – Well, my father is a chemist, but he's a Mm. farmer at heart. He grew up on a farm in Colorado and he has the greenest thumb. I swear. He just looks at plants and they like, go, (laughs) you know, and make a thousand berries and he doesn't have to do anything. And I, I did not inherit that. I can't grow anything practically, but I really thought it was cool that you could plant seeds and like he made us, I have two brothers. We all had to have gardens growing up our whole lives. And so, I just really thought plants were cool, and I thought it was exciting that they could be medicine, you know and not just take drugs i'd have en- I'd have enough of my own just you know mild personal experiences with the medical industry to know I didn't like how most things went down, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, but yeah, I really had no other
1: experience and so while it's still difficult for a lot of naturopaths to get their footing after um, you know they go through a really intense four or five year program, um, I would imagine it was even more difficult back. You graduated in 1996 mm-hmm. in, from um, whether Bastier or John Bastier College of Naturopathic Medicine or University at that time. Um, where did you go next?
2: Well, I actually went back to Colorado, um, which at that time was not a licensed state. It is now.
1: Uh-huh.
2: Um, Recently. And the you know, the dilemma there was really different, which is no one knew what, what I was. They hadn't even heard the word. Right. Whereas in Washington, it's like you have the opposite problem. There's like there's competition, right? There's so many. <laughs> but there, it was just getting people to recognize, like, what is this? Is that, like, homeopathy? Right. Or is that, like, mm. nutrition or... You know, so it was just really, really difficult. For anyway, it was very, very, very different. Um, but I'm glad I did that because I did have to practice without basically labs or any of the sort of accoutrements of, of conventional medicine. And I think it made me a much stronger doctor because it's mm-hmm. like you got to know what the symptoms are, and you have to be able to do physical exam and. And all that, so I I appreciated it, but yeah, it was a challenge. But on the off side, it cost way less to do school then, so I had a far lower mm-hmm. debt burden, which is the big difference today. hmm
1: mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And then how? So kind of going through your schooling um, and then getting into practice in Colorado. Where did you find your affinity for for plants in particular in, in botany as well? <laughs>
2: This is also a weird story, but I actually got really into midwifery when I got to Bastyr. Mm-hmm. So there was a, and there still is a midwifery program, but it was, right. at that point, it was just part of the naturopathic right, program. Right, and it's separate now. Yeah. And so I thought, you know, and again, everyone's like, you know, you can't really be a male midwife. That's not a thing,
0: but it is.
2: <laughs> and Dr. Bastier was a midwife and Dr. Bazzorno was a midwife. And Dr. Griffith was a midwife. They all learn to deliver babies. What is more natural in the world than childbirth? Like, why have we let that go from our scope of practice? It makes me so angry. And by the way, now I do men's health, so it's really funny that I'm saying this. <laughs> but um, anyway, so I did the whole midwifery program. And then and I thought this is going to be my shtick. This is going to be my niche and everyone's like, you can't do it, you can't do it. But they let me because I was so insistent. But I did my first birth, and I'm like, nope. <laughs> and the problem was I had to stay up for like 72 hours, and I couldn't do it. I, I stop functioning if I don't sleep. So You're you, you couldn't be a woman
0: then? <laughs> I, yeah, it's like
2: I don't know how anyone does this because I just couldn't. I, again, it was really I was really scared that I would do things that were unsafe. Because I couldn't think straight. So mm. then I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> dedicated a lot of... But the other thing I want to say about that that was really great is... And why I also think it's really important that birth be brought back into the scope of naturopathic medicine as a default is... It's really... I don't know. It gives you this weird confidence of just like... Mm. Even though it seems like this scary, intense thing, it's so natural and you can do it. And it's, it's not that complicated. So... I still to this day feel like the naturopath midwives are the strongest in our profession you know they just have so much incredible experience with this intense thing so anyway at that point i said uh oh what am i going to do well i've always like for the reasons i stated with my my father been very interested in plants and i we were just starting then to do our botanical medicine training Mm. And I was really lucky to have Mary Bove as my very Mm -hmm. first teacher, Mm -hmm. who is now retired. She's out in New England, but she was just fantastic. And she's basically a British-trained herbalist who became a naturopath. And it just, yeah, it was so exciting. I'm like, okay, I can really get behind this. Again, it's got tradition and science. Um, It's rich. It's varied. And, yeah, I just quickly kind of fell into it from that.
1: And you eventually, if I'm not mistaken, either um, started studying and uh, preceptoring or mentoring, whatever word, with um, Selena Heron?
2: Correct. So, yeah, I met her. Um, memory gets foggy, right? I'm pretty sure it was during my last year of medical school. Um, So, so after I actually only had Dr. Bo for one class and then she moved to New England. (laughs) And so then I had a different teacher named Lisa Messerl, who was Dr. Heron's best friend. So she brought, Lisa brought Selena from Arizona as like a guest teacher Mm. for like a week. So we had a couple lectures and then we went on my first ever herb walk. She actually took us because Bastyr didn't have an herb garden at this time. Well, this is how big the herb garden was (laughs) uh she took us to the university of washington which has an amazing herb garden Hmm. um it has such an old pharmacy program that they used to teach use it as a training center for pharmacists um anyway so and she knew everything about every herb i mean and there's herbs there from all over the world there are herbs from china from india from north america from south america like it's incredible and i mean and she didn't just know a little bit she knew like every culture's perspective on it if they had one and her own experience and i'm just like who is this person Like i, I want to be this person i want to know everything about every herb and so we just hit it off you know i have some people in your life you just mm-hmm. click and we just clicked and i have no idea why we have nothing in common whatsoever besides your
0: love for plants
2: (laughs) besides our love for plants um so yeah we we clicked right away you know then she went back to arizona where she practiced and we just kind of kept in touch and so the other quintal thing that happened is there was this movement that was starting that involved her and dr messerol to start what was called the um botanical medicine academy which is basically like a specialty society for naturopaths that that focus a lot on using herbs and so they they had a big meeting at one of our national conventions that i went to and lo and behold there she was and so we again we kind of just randomly ran into each other you know not randomly and again just really really clicked and so That was when we really had our first big talk, and she found I was from Colorado. She's like, oh, are you thinking of going back there? Like, what about Arizona? Like, she was clearly already starting to see, like, was I potentially going to move and work with her? Um, And I just at that point thought, like, no way. I'm going to go back to Colorado. That's where all my family is, all my friends, you know. Um, But she started to get more and more insistent like why don't you be my resident like why don't you train with me and you know I was I was really you know honored that she would ask me that and so finally she convinced me to come and check it out because I'd never been to Sedona which is where she was and there's an herb conference at the Southwest College which had just come into existence so I went down to the Herb Conference in Phoenix, and then I went up to Sedona. And I actually drove, because that'll come up later why that's important. So I drove from Colorado, Arizona, did this. I went to Sedona, and so one of the reasons I didn't want to go to Sedona is I had all these preconceived notions about what Sedona is like, which were all confirmed. It's this very (laughs) weird place. You know, it's very well known from this, like, new agey place. Yeah, It was really strange. But there is, a, there is a core group of people that live there that are not in that world. They're just the regular people. And so I saw pluses and minuses. But I really was turned off, quite honestly, by Sedona. And so I told her, no, I can't do this. I can't live in this little town with all these very strange people passing through all the time. So I was driving home. And I get to New Mexico. And I mean, it was literally like this... You turn, you know, you take a turn on the highway, so you're going, like, a totally different direction, and there's Comet hale Bop. And if you didn't see this, I'm so sorry, because it was like, you know, the comet is this big in the sky. It's huge, and it's like, I I, I still get kind of teary thinking about it, because it's just such an amazing thing to see. And it hit me, like, this incredible herbalist, who was the first chair of botanical medicine at Bastyr, <laughs> who has trained with everyone you've ever heard of in the herbal world, if she didn't train them, is kind of begging me to work with her. And I'm like whining about the town. <laughs> like, get over yourself. So I basically got home and called her and said, if the, if the, you know, the offer still stands, I'm going to come after all. And she said, come on down. So I basically packed everything up. I'd only been in Colorado less than a year. And move down there. Yeah. So she is inc- was an incredible physician. Um, and that's what, what I'd say is really what I learned working with her was how to be a doctor. Mm. It's like, how do you, and especially she was really big on that patients need to take responsibility for their health. They can't abdicate it to their doctor. And when they do that, that actually causes disease, right? That creates this, like, someone has to fix me mentality. Mm. And it's not, you know, we can't always fix ourselves, like that wasn't the issue. But if you don't take responsibility, you're never going to get better. (laughs) Um, So that was really kind of mind-blowing. But yeah, just and just seeing her giving out these enormous bottles of tincture and these huge things, just like high dosing and using the whole Materia Medica, not just the popular ones. And all kinds of exotic things i would never heard of from the Southwest, which aren't exotic and just I mean it was just so I got to make medicine I got to give it to patients I got to talk to Dr. Heron about her patients like it was we went we went every weekend almost we went on an herb walk or harvesting so it's like yeah every piece of herbal medicine I was just steeped in for two years and it was just incredible Um, and because she was importing herbs from all over the world I you know I got to see things coming in from just about everywhere you can think of and so yeah it was a really that was just a transformative experience to say the least Uh, so unfortunately Dr. Heron developed ovarian cancer she's no longer with us right Um, she actually lived with that for five years it was metastatic at diagnosis and no one lives five years with metastatic ovarian cancer but the problem was that was sort of her whole life was just treating herself um so she, had a, she has a son who was going to, who still needed to finish high school. So once he finished high school, she kind of felt like he was going to be okay and basically chose to to let go and to stop treating herself. Um, so it was just, um, really, really sad. But I do feel kind of like one of my jobs in the world is to spread her legacy. And so that's part of why I teach is I just want people to know how, how much she taught me and then to just really spread as much of that as I can.
1: Mm. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. And um, before we we close out that chapter, are any of her um uh her thought processes and her treatments recorded?
2: She did write a handful of papers um which I then helped sort of edit and clean up, and so a few of those were published in the Journal of Naturopathic Medicine, which is not really available except to past year. Um, there were a couple things we published. We published a little study in the um, Journal of Alternative and Complementary Medicine. So there's a bit. There's a bit. Okay. But mostly it was stuff that yeah, she basically transmitted to me, and I'm. Um, Well, you've inadvertently touched a button you didn't know, which is we were working on a book about formulating herbs when she died. Um, So I have like a third of a finished, it's not, I have a third of a manuscript for that project. Um, It's been really tough to go back and work on it, partly because it does stir up a lot of memories. Um, And partly just because it's, it's like, it's such a huge topic, I don't really know how to wrangle it. Uh, but that eventually that is going to come out and i feel like that's going to be one of her main legacies cuz mm. she is a she was really into formulating herbs and how to combine them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I think that'll be a wonderful resource for for so many people to be able to to look at that whenever you whenever you're able to kind of wrangle that <laughs> wrangle that into a um a bound book.
2: <laughs> yes, that's eventually it's going to happen it's going to happen
0: one of the things that you had um mentioned when she was kind of building up these big tinctures and giving them in high doses using the whole herbs can you can you just kind of elaborate a little bit on what why is it why is it important to use the whole herb and how that can kind of differentiate um or just be different from using single constituents in herbs
2: how much time do we have? <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're going to give you only like 10 minutes on this. Oh, geez. Okay, yeah, this is a big subject. Um, well, the first thing, I'm, I'm going to start on the scientific side of that. Um, the first thing is we, we have studies where they've, they have looked at this question explicitly and so this gets into the scientific method because i'm going to use the example of um, this herb artemnesia annua um, which has a compound in it called artemnesinin for treating which is now widely known it's a treatment for malaria it's an approved drug for that so you know we know about like how did they figure out to use that for malaria well it's because the herb was basically used for malaria. Now, they didn't call it malaria in China 2,000 years ago. Of course, they didn't know the mosquitoes spread it and all this stuff. But they knew if people had these fevers that came on these particular periods, that this was the herb that got rid of them. Mm. And so someone finally, well, we know who a group of Chinese researchers um, in the 1970s started to try to figure out what was it that was doing this? So here's the problem. You make a test, right? We are like, okay, what kills the plasmodium parasite in the test tube, right? So you take the whole herb and pour it on those, those cells, and they, it kills them, okay? So we know the whole herb does it. It's not just helping malaria for some other reason, okay? But then they start taking it apart, and they find that this and stuff kills it. And they're like, that's it. Magic bullet, right? It's a drug single molecule everything else in the herb didn't kill it this is the only thing that matters great and eventually one of those researchers got a nobel prize for doing that and good on her you know like a and i'm sorry i forget her name um but yeah she was not a trained um she didn't have a phd and you know she's a chinese woman uh doctor two um and she got a Nobel Prize for this, you know, which is great. Unfortunately, her collaborators did not get Nobel Prizes, which is politically weird. <laughs> but anyway, so that's great. And I'm, that's not bad. But that model itself cannot let you see if the other constituents do something else. Because there are studies where they've shown that there are these flavonoids. So artemnesin is what we call a ses- sesquiterpene lactone. And it's very bitter tasting. But there are these flavonoids in... Artemisia ania, which we call Sweet Annie in the West, and it's not sweet at all. <laughs> it's bitter. <laughs> it smells sweet, but it tastes bitter. Um, they show prevent resistance to the artemisinin. So when you combine them with the artemisinin, it doesn't kill the, the bug, right? It doesn't hurt it, but the flavonoids don't. But together, they stop, like basically the parasites don't become resistant. And we know the mechanism of that which are, the, there are these pumps in the plasmodium, the thing that causes malaria, that basically squirt the artemisin out of the parasite. And the flavonoids block up that pump. And it turns out this is super common in the herbal world. That's been documented now with several plants. And so again, your model can't see that. So, this is, so science is an incredibly powerful tool. But you can't see things that, you, that you're that you not looking at, mm-hmm. right? If your microscope is pointed here, you can't see anything around it. Exactly. And so it's, that, that's, this reductionist approach is very powerful, but it, it has grave weaknesses, which are shown here. So even more importantly now, we actually have a very large clinical trial, which was published in 2019, in, that was done in Africa, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, with over 900 people, showing that, this, that the whole herb of Artemisia annua is more effective than the drug they make from it. Mm. And in many different ways. But even more interestingly, they also studied this herb called Artemisia afra, or African sweet annie, or African wormwood. And it was just as effective, and it has no artemisinin in it. So the magic bullet is not the magic bullet. There's some combination of molecules in these two plants that kill malaria. And why I particularly use this example is because now it's clear that, well, A, there were far fewer side effects with the whole plants than with the drugs derived from them. Um, It was way cheaper (laughs) It was something that people could grow themselves. They don't have to be reliant on a drug company and a doctor and a pharmacy and a supply chain and Western capitalism to have. Yeah, but right? where's
0: the money in that?
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but also, it, they showed that it prevents transmission of malaria in a way that nothing else has been shown to do. Oh. So malaria goes through this complex life cycle, but basically the form that grows in our bodies and that can get into the mosquitoes are called the gametocytes. And that's the only thing that gets sucked into the mosquito and can create continue the cycle. Well, these herbs both killed the gametocytes. So basically, you, people wouldn't transmit malaria anymore. So this, this is so crucial because we've been so sold on this idea of single molecular entities as drugs that we might be missing crucially more effective treatments that could even stop one of the, still the most ravaging diseases of the world today, of malaria, which still kills millions of people a year. And of course we just ignore it because they're basically poor people in Africa and Asia. But it's, it has devastating economic consequences mm-hmm. for everyone. You know, A lot of money gets spent on this and what if there was an herb that could stop it, you know, combined with bed nets, combined with a lot of things. Um, so I just, it really gets me riled up because we've just been told, oh, it has to be a drug like malaria. That's a serious disease. You have to take drugs for that. Mm. And it's like, what if that's the biggest mistake we've made for 50 years? Mm-hmm. It's been staring us in the face the whole time. So we
0: have the yeah. drug, but it's just an herbal drug. It's not a pharmaceutical drug. That's right. Yeah.
2: And this is now becoming critically important because now resistance to the drug and malaria is becoming widespread. So And that's what's happened with every antibiotic, with one exception, ever. There's always resistance evolves, of course. But there's no documented resistance to the herb, right? It's like the herb and malaria have coexisted forever essentially. And co Yeah, that's right. And they've it's never become resistant to it because there's many, many, many molecules. It's not just about one thing.
0: Mm-hmm. That's fascinating.
1: Yeah. Before we leave, um, kind of uh, sweet Annie and Artemisia um, plants for a moment here. A couple of um, other take homes I want to maybe touch on too. You had also talked about. I mean, this is a plant that can be that is grown in the United States and can be used as for its bitter properties at much lower doses. And we kind of would like to talk, can you touch on that for a second?
2: Yeah, um, I I really like this. And I, although honestly, I've, I've been using recently much more of, because there, there are literally hundreds of species of artemnesia. And so I really like the species that grow basically in the Western United States. So I especially been using them um, either what's called artemisia ludoviciana or western mugwort and artemisia tridentata or the um, big sagebrush and yeah these are great bitters that still have antimicrobial properties and you only need to take i don't know 20 30 drops of the tincture at a time to get a strong effect and these are very prolific common herbs they're not rare we're using the leaves and so particularly like to contrast that with gentian which is a wonderful bitter plant i love gentian but gentian is a rare plant it grows only in at high altitudes um, we're using the root so it's much more devastating to the mm. plant to harvest it it grows in wetlands so it's like in these hypersensitive areas that where people like to build cities. So gentian really is an endangered species or a threatened species. And I really think, again, I have nothing against it. I think it's wonderful, but we really need to reduce our use of gentian. It's just not sustainable versus these Artemisias, which are weedy and they're everywhere and they're just as potent. Um, yeah, so I really, really like them for that, and um, I hope to, to spread this idea further. And, of course, if there's other reasons that someone – because these herbs have more actions than gentian, too, including that they're antimicrobial. So for those patients that have so-called SIBO, they're particularly indicated, and also um, – much forgotten they're what we call nootropic they enhance your memory and cognitive function so who doesn't need that right (laughs) Uh, yeah
0: and so what might be some other examples of um you know consider considerations so you gave the example of gentian versus artemisia plants um you know and then maybe there might i know one of them that i'm aware of is like slippery elm as being one that that might potentially be um unsustainably harvested or um can you give a few other examples of herbs that might be common that people use that maybe are unaware of equal um equally effective alternatives
2: oh boy yeah again how much time (laughs) Um, Yeah. slippery elm is interesting because that's not really a problem of over harvesting it's mostly because of dutch elm disease which was introduced from europe it does affect that species too and so yeah the wild dutch elms are really i mean the wild slippery elms too are really struggling um and then just yeah having people harvesting on top of that because we're taking the bark is sort of just one more layer of the problem but uh, one herb that i'm really on fire about is called pygeum um it's latin name is prunus africanum so that's a herb that grows basically across the middle of africa or at least it used to it's a tree again we use the bark And it's used for enlarged prostates. Well, we have an abundant local North American plant, saw palmetto, where we use the fruit. And so it doesn't hurt the plant to harvest the fruit. You know, you're harvesting the bark off a tree that's like scraping the skin off your arm. What's going to happen? You're going to get infections. It's going to be bad. And it's just much rarer of a plant. So really... Um, Pygeum has been basically exterminated from Eastern Africa. It still exists in Western Africa, but it's in grave peril. It's absolutely an endangered species. At this point, I would say using Pygeum, you are directly contributing to the extinction of a species. And I just cannot Mm -hmm. recommend it. I know there are some local people in Cameroon that are growing it, are cultivating it. And if I knew a way to connect with them directly, I would use it because then it would be supporting local people trying to save the species. But I don't know if I don't have contact. And I've called many herbal suppliers saying, where do you get your Pygeum? And literally no one will tell me, which says Mm. to me, it's not from these collectives. (laughs) They're just buying it on the open market. So yeah i really really argue against that i just use saw palmetto they're very chemically similar the constituents are similar mm-hmm. um so we kind of have that issue with golden seal and ginseng both of which are were, are, were and to some extent are massively over harvested in the wild and again their habitat has been restricted you know reduced by human activity but in those cases they've been saved by cultivation. So I would just say those mm. are herbs you only want to buy cultivated. Do not buy wild ginseng or wild golden seal.
0: Even is though this American strong. or Siberian ginseng? Both actually, both. Okay.
2: Yeah, both the Panax ginseng, the Asian ginseng, which now is mass cultivated in the US too, but mostly in China. Mm-hmm. And the American ginseng. Um, Now, you can get what's called wild simulated American ginseng, where people intentionally plant it in the forest, and they don't mess up the forest. You know, that's fine, but but actual wild ginseng is uh, problematic at best. Um, So, um, I think we're going to talk about the, the myrrh and the resin Later, yeah. Yeah. I would love,
1: yeah, that that'd be a good, I think this is a good time to bring it up actually. Right. So, you know, we're talking about how, um, what we're really talking about is sustainability of these plants that have been around for millions, thousands of years and years and years on this planet. And, um, they provide such an important part to the ecosystems that they're a part of. Um, and a term that a lot of people probably are not familiar with. Most people Um, In the lay public, they probably know, you know, um, berries, they might know about, you know, fruiting berries, and they know leaves and they know roots. But what are resins? And what are some examples of herbs that people probably know from religious contexts or other things like that? And why are you against the use of of these um, constituents?
2: So, so, one thing I want to confirm I'm not against their use in general, but there are some that are definitely endangered, um, and we have wonderful substitutes, is the beauty. So, probably everyone's encountered a pine tree that has this sticky stuff dripping out of it. And it kind of looks like it's crying, like they're like tears dripping out. Um, so, those are resins. So, some plants, especially in the pine family, Um, But also in the cypress family, these trees, this is a common sort of defense mechanism they have. So in their bark, in the inner part of the bark, there are basically these canals that make this sticky, sticky, thick goo that's um, very, very, it doesn't dissolve in water and it's incredibly aromatic. And so if a bug bites into the bark or it gets cut, this stuff oozes out, and it can seal the wound, and it can kill the beetle. And intriguingly, there's also evidence that then that, that smell wafts to the other plants and warns them of danger. That this is actually a signaling mechanism between plants. So they don't plants don't necessarily communicate through sound; they communicate through chemicals. Um, and that is not woo-woo. That is very well documented. <laughs> so, I'm um, that's cool. Anyway, but it turns out these that um, these resins have a lot of incredible medicinal effects for us, and so um, what's neat is you know basically everything in the pine family is a is pretty darn abundant. There are examples of, of very localized species there that might be in trouble, but you know there's tons of super common plants and trees in these in this family, so whether it's pine trees and then Pacific Northwest, of course we have Douglas fir, which is in the pine family. We've got spruces, you've got true firs, you've got hemlocks, you know, all those are in the pine family. And then we have super, super abundant amounts of them. And so you do have to basically injure the bark to get the resin to drip out. But you can do that, you know, in a very small way, or you can just go harvest what's already dripped out but also like the needles frequently when they're young will exude the same resin. So you can just collect these drops um, of resin. And so, so there are other plants in the world and other families that also have resin. And this is where we get into trouble, but also the cypress family is very common. So that'd be juniper. And um, we have the red cedar in the Northwest. There's the white cedar and all across Northern, in North America so there's lots of other resin-containing trees that are common. But so then we have these tr- these species, particularly that are, grow in the deserts in the Middle East and surrounding areas. So most famously myrrh, um, but also frankincense has become very popular. That's called Boswellia, and these are great medicines. I'm Again, I'm not disputing that, and they're they're very effective, and we have clinical studies that make them look really good. But they're You know, they're in a desert. Just think about it. Like how abundant are trees in the desert? (laughs) Nothing like what we have in our forests, you know, in the boreal zone where it's basically it's a forest. So these are not super common trees. And they're, you know, many of them are in these war torn areas. So particularly Somalia is a big problem. A lot of myrrh or a lot of, excuse me, frankincense Frankincense, comes from us or from at least used to come from Somalia. And basically that, you know, the state has collapsed there. They've been in civil war for decades and it's, it's horrible. And so then also war creates this perverse incentive for people to over harvest because they're desperate. It's like, we've got to get some income. We have our store was destroyed, our house was destroyed, our cows were killed. Like we need money to survive. So they go and they'll over harvest a resource knowing full well it's unsustainable. But who cares? You, you got to live. So I don't blame anyone locally that's doing this. I do the same thing. I'm not going to lie. That's exactly what I would do. But for the species of the plant, it's really devastating. So again, if you want to help people in Somalia, you need to work extra hard. (laughs) You need to develop connections with local groups or whatever to try to help them buying frankincense on the open market is not helping them they're basically selling it for pennies on the dollar to out of desperation and they're you know barely scraping by so anyway so what I'm against is using myrrh and and frankincense that are basically unregulated that are coming there it's like blood diamonds right this is blood resins Mm. they're coming from unsustainable sources that we don't even know and we just close our eyes we're like la 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 I'm taking my pills Mm. And it's very, you know, egotistical at some level. But
0: I think probably many people have no idea that that That's there's right. even this this um, issue or controversy. And can you just briefly explain a little bit about, like, what resins are, um, what, pipe, what people might need to know about them, and, um, and we talked about a little bit, we, we talked about why it's important to conserve them, but, um, like, how are they medicinal, or, like, how...
1: What are people commonly using them for? Right. Yeah.
2: Um, Yeah, It's funny. Describing what something is is difficult. Okay, so they, importantly, as I was saying, they come from these special structures in the plants, and only some plants have them. This is not like all plants. And they're, yeah, made up of these very thick, sticky stuff. Um, And so they're commonly, it turns out, used for... Like respiratory infections, I would say is the most common, mm-hmm. which is intriguing in the COVID pandemic times. Um, so, what's interesting is that these molecules they're made up of, which are called terpenoids, are these very very fat soluble molecules. So they don't really dissolve in water. Mm-hmm. Well, what that means when you take them into our into your body, is that it's basically the job of the kidneys to get rid of those, but also the lungs. We actually exhale the compounds that we ingest to remove them from our body. So that means they pass through our lungs as they're leaving, and so the medicine really concentrates in the lungs, but also the urinary tract. And um, they're very fragrant. Um, They generally taste pleasant to people, so there's a lot of reasons these are kind of popular. Another really common resin is called Balm of Gilead. And speaking of a, one sort of um, religious uh, connection there, that's something people may have heard of from the Bible. And this, in, at least in North America, comes from cottonwood trees. So in a, a whole different group. But um, basically the cottonwoods actually start to flower in the winter, and their flower buds are coated with this resin. So that's a wonderful, super sustainable local resource. Again, the cottonwoods are super common across most of North America. Um, Even in the deserts, there's cottonwoods. So it's really a great medicine. So that's one people would know for respiratory things, somewhat for treating allergies, but also for urinary tract infections. They're useful for treating skin infections. They're really good at killing fungus. And because it's w- not water-soluble, they really stick and stay on the skin mm-hmm. a long time. I remember when I used it to also... climb
0: trees as a, as a young kid, and I would get the, the resin all over my hands, and I'd desperately be trying to wash Ooh. my hands in the water but <laughs> to no avail.
2: Won't work. You need isopropyl alcohol <laughs> to have any chance, or just time. I would try to trick the students always when I take them on an herb walks to eat resin. Because the thing about when you put resin in your mouth is... It's it's repelled by the water in your mouth, so it sticks to your teeth, and you cannot get it off. Wow. And it will stay there for hours. And at first, people were like, ah, what have you done to me? But that's actually another great property, because it's really good for treating gingivitis and periodontal disease, wow. right? Because it sticks on your teeth and stays there and helps control the bacteria. And all that. Mm. So the myrrh and the resin also got... Or, um the frankincense got popular for also treating a lot of inflammatory diseases. Right. So there's studies on Joins. the frankincense for like arthritis and Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis and you know some pretty hardcore things. And again, yeah, that's great, and I think it's wonderful medicine. It's just it's not sustainable. You know, I don't care if there's a thousand studies that say it's incredible. If we're going to annihilate the species in a few years what good is that mm-hmm. you know it's going to be the resource will be gone well that was no good so um, trying to find sustainable alternatives is is crucial for those mm.
1: taking a step out of um kind of like clinical herbal medicine for a moment here and just kind of speaking to the lay public and the lay person You know, how do you encourage um, people, if maybe you're giving a lay lay talk to the public or things like that, to get involved in, you know, herbal medicine, connecting back with nature? How how does that conversation come up for you?
2: It mostly comes up with my patients. Um, I mostly don't do talks for the general public because I just have kind of focused on professional ed. But I, of course, have my patients that I talk to all the time. And Yeah, one of the things I like to point out is I'm practicing naturopathy. And that nature part is not in there as a secondary thought. Like, that is crucial. Like, part of what I'm trying to do is get everyone to reconnect to nature, that that is healing. And that that can take many different forms, but one of the forms I think is really important is being knowledgeable about plants and having connection with them. Everyone's going to stick plants in their mouth and eat them for food. You have to. It's crucial. <laughs> and you should know more about them than I bought this at the grocery store and it's called celery. You know? <laughs> like, what does celery look like? How, and that's important because there are things that look like celery that are very poisonous. And I really think it also goes back to children. Like we have just basically abdicated our responsibility to teach our children about the natural world it's safer just to say, don't touch any plants, don't go near nature, it's all dangerous, than to teach them how glorious it is, and there's a few things that are dangerous, and here's how you would know. Mm. And it's been great, because I have so many friends that are naturopathic doctors that have kids, that I, you can teach a four-year-old to identify poisonous plants. They know, And you can teach them Latin names. They can learn anything. They're sponges. Like what better time, and I say this as a non-parent. I don't have kids, but I watch. I'm around kids. My friends have kids, and I watch them, and they teach their kids, this is a stinging nettle. It, what happens if you touch it? It'll sting me. That's right. <laughs> and how did they learn that? They went and touched it, and it stung them. Did they die? No. They had a nettle sting. They lived, and they learned, and the parent taught them, That's what happens, that's actually medicine, but it hurts, right, so don't Mm -hmm. touch that and learn to know what it looks like and let's talk about what it looks like and, you know. So I think it's actually an incredible bonding experience for uh, caregivers, parents, grandparents and children to do that together. If you don't know, learn it together with your kids. And to go out of your way to teach them the things that are harmful, don't hide it from them, that makes it dangerous if they don't know that there's a problem, but also don't demonize all of nature because some part of it could be poisonous mm-hmm. so
1: and, and that's so critical I think it's um it's so rewarding or just so it it really lightens my soul when um we have a son, our son um and he's two and a half years old. And we're constantly sharing, hey, this is this, this is this plant, this is this plant. And um, it just brings such joy when he'll go horsetail and, you know... um, Or lemon
0: balm. Lemon
1: balm. balm. And and he'll just... He knows what those are and he loves... Or every every time we
0: pass the apple tree on the side of the road, he'll go, apple tree. And it's like, (laughs) you can't see the apples on it yet. He just knows it's there. But he knows what the tree looks (laughs) like.
1: Exactly. And it just really... Helps to connect you to um, to your community and to nature and to the world around you, and, and I think that has um, really fascinating implications when we talk about mental health and connecting back to nature and things like that. That um, we may not have randomized controlled trials on, but um, you know, it's uh, it, it's still there and and waiting to be to be discovered, kind of thing. Yeah, so um we're going to move into a little bit of some very short kind of rapid fire questions here and just get your initial thoughts on on a bunch of different topics. Um don't need to be long-winded answers by any means. Um but I guess I'll start. Do you have a favorite and this doesn't have to be herbal by any means. Um, a favorite product or, um, thing that you've purchased for under a hundred dollars that's made a significant improvement in your life, whether like a health and wellness, whether that's something in the kitchen, a gym thing, a herbal thing, anything under a hundred bucks that's really like, wow, that was a great purchase.
2: That's a really good question. Um, I'm kind of drawing a blank. Okay, so one answer that comes to mind is, um, I mean, I've bought many, many, many plants for far under $100 that I planted in my garden, <laughs> and thank goodness my wife has a green thumb so they stay alive, because I don't seem to be able to do that, but um, particularly right now, all of our irises are blooming, and they smell so good, and they're so beautiful, and um, yeah, getting that mental health thing. It just I I go out and smell them every day because it's just incredible. And I you know I know all about the medicine of them too, but it's just it's really for the mental health benefit of them. Mm. And I wonder about smelling it. Like, what does that do to your brain? Because it makes me so happy. It's so good. And you know everyone knows that about roses. You know that old saying like stop and smell the roses. That's not a metaphor. That's literal. <laughs> when you see a rose plant. No matter what you're doing, stop and smell it. It's definitely good for your brain. Yeah. And everyone smiles when they smell roses. <laughs> everyone likes that smell. So you have to stop and smell the roses,
0: literally. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Love it. Yeah, what I guess that's mine. What would be um, a favorite tea that you that you have?
2: Oh, hibiscus. Mm. No question about oh, it. Oh, um, tangy. I love sour sweet. things. Yeah. And I like that it's like colorful. I don't know what the, why yeah. that should matter, but I like it. Um, but yeah, I just love it. And I love that you can mix it with lots of other flavors. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's still really good. So. What do you... Well, you, well sorry, what yeah. yeah. would mm-hmm.
0: be some medicinal effects of hibiscus tea that... Um, I know blood pressure is one. Yeah,
2: lowering blood pressure. So the, I also found, because I teach the class um, for the naturopathic students about kidney health, that there is a study that it helps to protect the kidneys in humans. It's one of the only herbs that seems to act the way that it does, that also lowers blood pressure. So that's fantastic. Um, Yeah, basically a good cardiovascular tonic, helping prevent heart disease and all its consequences is how I mostly think of it. One
1: of the um, common teas if people come over to our house that we will brew is hibiscus and lemongrass. And hibiscus nice. and lemongrass, and people will come over and they'll be like, wow, what is this? <laughs> and it's a great opportunity to just have a conversation about, you know, what hibiscus is, what, what it's doing, and all, all of those great things about it.
2: Um, yeah, it's one thing, I, I don't like coffee just because I think it tastes gross, but it's also, I feel like it's so limiting of what people's experience. Like, there's so many plants to, that are delicious, to try and we're just kind of stuck on tea and coffee tea and coffee which fine that's great they have their good sides but boy branch out have some herbal teas <laughs> they're they're amazing so that's another way to get people to connect with nature for sure is just try it for just a beverage it doesn't have to always be medicine exactly
0: actually on that note of coffee i'm curious to ask you um have you heard of i'm sure you have but the herb yopon i don't know if i'm saying it right yeah mm-hmm. okay um and i've i've heard um that it's that it's an herb that can be used um almost like a coffee substitute um but it but that it's native to the to the u.s um can you tell us yeah, a little bit Southwest. more about that okay
2: um so it is in um a different family but one that's kind of considered related um and i don't know if they've confirmed if it has caffeine in it or not okay. but yeah it's kind of more stimulating but one thing to just be just to know is that plants in that family do have some uh, history of possibly causing diarrhea. Okay. Um, so there is like you can take too much, mm-hmm. but mostly I think if you stick to the leaf of it is where you're going to be much safer. Whereas the um, the fruit is probably worse. Mm-hmm. And anyway, yeah, because it's, it's the Latin name of this plant is Ilex vomitoria. <laughs> so it's really easy to remember that little warning. Oh. So I haven't really seen that happen. I've only heard a little bit about people drinking it.
0: So okay. That's in, intriguing. Yeah. Well, cool. Is there, is there anything that you wanted to share that we haven't yet talked about um, that you want our listeners to kind of take away from this episode um, about nature, naturopathic medicine or herbal medicine?
2: Yeah, boy, that's a great opening for me to say anything.
0: Anyway. Yeah, <laughs> um, the floor is yours.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, so a little bit riffing on we just said, I I do want to encourage people at some level to do more for themselves and to trust themselves um, and to you know use your resources to find reasonable information and. So riffing off of that, um, for the most part, the internet is not a very good source of information about plants. There's a lot of misinformation. I st- We're still in the era that I really think books are your safest and best source of information. You know who's telling you this. you can trace where they found that information and that's you know, you can find sources like that on the internet, but I think, Reading some random person saying something about a plant with no citation or any idea of where that came from, you just can't trust it. Um, and there's really some very frightening misinformation. I, I partly, of course, you know, everyone sees Wikipedia pages, and I'm, I'm when I'm researching anything, I check the page. And just recently, there was one about the herb Lily of the Valley, it was outrageous like, every other word in this was it's deadly, it's poison, don't even touch it, all this stuff. I'm like. I've given that to dozens of patients. It's not poisonous at all. I mean, if in reasonable doses, but even. And so I went and looked at the literature and confirmed like there are no reported cases of death from this plant ever, even in the like pre modern era. The cases, there's a few cases of people getting sick, but they all completely recovered. I mean, it's just like this is outrageous. So you just have to really watch that mm-hmm. um, and look at your sources. So
0: and on that note, yeah, you've you've, you've published several textbooks as well. Can you tell us a little bit about those?
2: Yeah, and again, I I really am writing for professional right. audiences that have knowledge of medicine and botany and, and more experience. So I haven't really written anything for the lay okay. um, public, um, but there are, you know plenty of good herb books. Just read don't read the biography don't read the like oh this sounds fun like read the history of the author like why would you trust them what's their training mm-hmm. how long have they been doing it if it's like they don't even say that stuff they're like they're from vermont and they like to go skiing like okay so they're not qualified to tell me anything about herbs you know you want to know what school did they go to who did they train with how long have they been practicing have they actually used these herbs those are the questions you, you really want so anyway i really encourage people to use the books that are written by michael moore mm-hmm. um, who are in north america uh, which is the same name as the famous sort of activist filmmaker but this was an herbalist who is not related to him um, and he he writes books about plants basically in the western united states is, and They're definitely written for lay people. You'll see there's some technicality in there, but he's pretty clear about when this herb is not really good for you to use for yourself. But I really like, cause he focuses on native plants. It's not all about the exotic herb of the week that someone's trying to sell to you. Mm -hmm. So those are ones I really try to push people to, to get in that sort of uh, genre of herbals.
1: Yeah. And just wrapping up here, do you have any social media presence or anything like that, that our listeners could find you on if they did want to find you besides kind of looking at, um, your, your books are, are now, um, they've changed publishing companies, right? It's now, what's the publishing company called?
2: Wild brilliance press. It's called
1: wild brilliance com, right? Mm -hmm. Okay.
2: Um, I am on Twitter. That's right. Um, again mostly posting things sort of with practitioners in mind um i think we we have have some practitioners who
0: do follow along on our on our podcast as well so it could be helpful
2: um i I believe it's dr yeah dr yarnell seven at dr 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 yarnell and the number seven um and yeah i'm not really active on facebook like that i have just a a website for my practice really, mm-hmm. but that's about it.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and what is your special? can you just share a little bit about your specialty? Or?
2: Yeah, so I'm uh, focused on men's health and kidney health, uh, which are neither of which are common in naturopathic medicine. So um, I, yeah, that's good for people to know that because it's certainly an area that I've you know, been practicing almost 25 years, that'll be next year. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, really am passionate about those, those areas and helping people.
0: Great.
1: Well, Eric, thank you so much for coming on the Woodall Wellness Podcast, sharing your knowledge with us, with the world. Um, We cannot thank you enough.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, share, and leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Follow us at Woodall Wellness Podcast on Instagram. Anisa can be found on Instagram at Anisa Woodall Nutrition, and Dr. Mark can be found on Twitter at Dr. Woodall ND. Subscribe to Anisa's Wellness Wednesday newsletter and get her free guides: Top Five First Foods for a Nourished Baby and Top Five Tips for Cycle-Induced Sugar and Carb Cravings on her website AnisaWoodall.com forward slash free download. Now get ready for that fun disclaimer.
1: This podcast is for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or any other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to this podcast are at the user's own risk. The content on this podcast is not intended to be a substitute to professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition that they have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for such conditions.